So much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is the CEO and founder of The Ankler, Janice Min. Janice is an absolute legend in the publishing world, and when I think of some of the great names in the industry, I remember people like Kathy Black, I'm a very big fan of Joanna Coles, uh, also of Hearst uh, Roots, Janice is in that same category and really in many ways has created a category of one. Um, so we are thrilled to have you and thanks so much for doing this, Janice. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And I just wanna point out you named all women, which is very unusual for publishing. They're not like a ton of women at you know at the top rungs of this business. So um, very cool. I like that, Matthew. Well, uh, in these, this case, absolutely true and uh, <laughs> uh, delighted. So Janice, there are so many places to start with you. Um, your career has been so prolific. We're going to talk about a lot of it. But I read somewhere going way back to one of your earliest gigs at People. Yeah. That you were not considered to be a very good writer. <laughs> so it would be a fun place to start. Oh my God. Do we have to start there? Okay. I'm just kidding. Of course we can start there. So it, um, so I had been, let's see, I was a newspaper writer, like this whole, everyone's career is so circuitous. And I think that, and this is one of the things I've always believed in that you can't really plan your career. It just kind of at various moments will happen to you. And I was a journalist and I went to, I went, I, I went to school in New York because I wanted to be a journalist and I went to graduate school in New York for journalism um, and at Columbia. And I'm now on the board of the journalism school there, which I love uh, being part of. Um, and I just wanted a job. And so I end up being a newspaper reporter in Westchester County for the Gannett newspapers when that was like a big thriving organization um, and doing really sort of, um, not great, you know, like it was like working Tuesday through Saturday, two to 10 p.m., driving around northern Westchester, covering local towns. Um, and I just I'm like, OK, I want to do something else. I want to work in back in New York City. And then one of the, so I send my resume out and clips. Remember those you would like photo the photocopy your clips. Um, and then one of the first places I got a call back was to go interview at People magazine. I had never bought a single copy in my life. I. Um, I considered myself a sort of serious minded person in terms of what I would like to do with my career. Um, but I, I bought it and I'm like, okay, I can do this. This will work. And, um, 
And then they hired me and I, 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 I'm going to guess maybe I was the youngest, if not the youngest writer they had ever hired there. I was 23. And I think what hadn't, what I hadn't really appreciated was how formulaic the writing style was at People um, and at Time Inc. at that time. And for those of you who are old enough to remember Time Inc., it had all these storied titles and sitting on a building at 51st and 6th Avenue. And you would, um, there was a very, you weren't writing for your own voice. You were writing for the voice of the public. So there was very much like a Time Magazine voice, a People Magazine voice, um, uh, you know, a, a Life Magazine voice. It was on a, you know, in the in the death throes then. Um, but you were you were all parts of this machine, and um, and I just couldn't really like I couldn't really make the People Magazine voice click in my head. And um, and also it was this crazy system. I mean, it seems so indulgent now where people had this massive network of uh, reporters all around the world and they would send files to you, to the writer to like turn into copy. Um, and I don't think that really exists anymore, but um, yeah. So it took a while for that People Magazine voice to click in, but it's weird. It's like once the light switched, I totally, it switched hard and I then could just do it. It was like having like a chip installed in your computer and then it just, it just took. So um, I had, I would say probably like 18, maybe a year and a half or 14 months of total struggle there. And then it clicked and then I became a senior editor there and, you know, did, did pretty well. Fantastic. Now that's an interesting sort of ballsy if you will, um, job for a young 23-year-old. Yeah. Your, your I, parents were very conservative, right? First-generation immigrants from South Korea. Yes. So, but okay. were very supportive of you, from what I understand. Yes. So, um, so it's funny. I would, I would say my parents were um, untraditional in, the, in how one might typically think of Asian immigrant parents. So I had a ton of freedom as a child, a ton of freedom in what I wanted to pursue. I mean, part of this was, uh, I mean, I was so incredibly bad at uh, math and science. And um, it was funny because I was just home in Colorado at my mother's house this uh, this past week and I found my report card from high school and I mean the trans my senior year transcript and I'll remind you this is the transcript that got me into Columbia back then when they admitted lots more people than they admit now and one of my classes was um, badminton and archery and I got an A in that class and I took no science no math for I think the last two years of high school and um, and back then you could do those things um, and my parents were really um, so they, I mean, I think they saw the signs right away. Like this one's not going to be a doctor. Um, <laughs> this one's probably not going to be a scientist. And it's funny because my dad was a, he was a, a science person. He was a physiology professor and zoologist uh, when I was younger, when we were younger. And, um, and so I just like, I just loved journalism from junior high. I just felt like it was something, I, I don't know why. I don't know why some people like fall in love with I don't know, being a magician or, you know, deciding they want to be a sports broadcaster from early on. But I just felt like it was my calling. And I dedicated a huge part of my 
like of my junior high and high school existence and figuring out like, how can I go live somewhere where I get to do that thing? And, um, and so it seemed like, you know, you get to do that thing in New York city. So that's how I set my sights on going to Columbia. Absolutely fantastic. And all these years later, your parents must be thrilled on the board. of the <laughs> that's, that's, um, that's full circle. That, that, that is, that is totally full circle. And I think like, I'll just, I'll just make a plug for like how, what, how people, how colleges, I think ever, all these kids are so, and I, you know, I have three kids now and I see what goes on in schools. Everyone is sort of like, like a polished stone, like try, everyone's trying to create the right formula for the right kind of kid to get into the right kind of school. And oh my God, I mean, I went to a massive public high school that where I was the first person from there to ever go to Columbia. Um, I had never been to New York City until I got out of the plane on, at LaGuardia to go to the campus for freshman orientation. I mean, I think that there's something to be said for, and I think I know schools are working really hard on this to try to find kids who aren't, who, who weren't born and bred to go to an Ivy League school or, you know, achieve greatness in the traditional sense. Um, so I like, I'll always be grateful to Columbia for that, for seeing something that like, I mean, God knows it wouldn't be happening for me today there. So, um, yeah. And you got in, you were what, 16 years of age? I was 16. So I was a grade skipper. Um, and uh, so I, so I told you I was terrible at math and science, but I was really, I, I was, uh, I guess, really good at the other stuff. And so in elementary school, I was moved ahead a year. I never was a third grader. Um, and I was also a really young birthday. So I was an August birthday. So I was already the youngest kid in the class. And then I was doubly the youngest kid in the class. And I'm like, this like short little tiny thing. And so I was, I think for many years, just like this like weird, you know, misfit kid. I mean, not really, I had friends, but, um, but it, yeah. So then I was 16 when I graduated high school, then I turned 17, I think the week before I went off to college. And lied about your age to get a job at a McDonald's, <laughs> which I love. I just, I always wanted to work like it's, and I think some of it was this like independence from my parents and being able to go out and, you know, make your own money to do your own thing. And, uh, you know, I, I would highly suggest anyone, everyone make their kids get a menial summer job. Um, it's, and I'm not, I don't mean to demean that job because I know it's for some people, it is actually how they make a living as an adult. Um, but it is a, you know, it's a, it is, a, I think it's an experience you'll never forget, right? Um, just sort of how to deal with the public and kind of just the, like the, an appreciation for the service industry and what it takes to, you know, to just like go change the garbage at a McDonald's. Like it is, you know, it is a, it is an experience that I think, you know, everyone should send their, everyone who ha, who is lucky enough to have rich entitled kids should go send them off to do something like that. Yeah, I, I could not agree more with you. And I, I worked as a kid always. And to this day, I think a lot of what shaped me with those experiences, you know, cleaning cages at American Kennels on West 8th Street. Wow. And, baking bagels and washing dishes. And most memorably one summer through my mom who would always cut out newspaper articles for me and give me leads. I had my own chip witch cart and I sold ice cream on the streets of Manhattan. 
Oh my God. Okay. That makes me crave a chip, which enormously, oh, but go on. <laughs> such a good, uh, such a good item, but that's how you learn. You, you know, when you're working on the streets of New York city, that's how you yeah. learn. Uh, completely. And so I had another summer job. I was um, a cashier at Target and my local Target. And I like, it's so funny. I like, I don't remember that much from the job, except that I remember one day, like the line was really long and the person, person came up to the register and was like, well, I guess I picked the slow lane. And I was like, you know what? Like, buddy, like I am not slow. And I was, I remember just being like, you know, it, it was this first sense of like competition, this feeling of like, I am not slow. I am very, very good at this and I will show you. And it was sort of a, just a, like, it's funny, these things that stick with you, but I think it was probably one of the first times I sort of felt like, you know, I will not be misjudged in my job at Target. <laughs> you go, the early seeds planted. So you have a great run at people. And then I guess a little cup of coffee at life and also a, a brief tenure in style. Any, any yeah. reflections on those two gigs? God, you know, I mean, talk, those things were both, I think they said something about the state of publishing at the time. So uh, life was just, I mean, had run its course. And so they, I had had this reputation um, in, you know, towards the end of my time at People, I was there five years as having, you know, a ton of ideas and creative and so, um, and also at InStyle, so sorry, in between people and life, I worked at InStyle and I um, was in charge of launching these special issues they were doing. And then your audience will love this. There was so much demand for print advertising that they had to, <laughs> they had to create even more content, even more magazines to absorb it because there was just too much. Um, and so they wanted to create these specialty issues and, um, so I had, I launched, uh, let's see, there was like a weddings one makeover and, um, weddings makeover and got an entertaining one. And, um, they were just shoveling ads into them. And I, and, and so, but they did well, they did really well. And, um, and because of my experience doing those, um, they moved me over to life to try to create, put some creative energy into life to try to save it. And the whole, it just didn't, I mean, just like, I think, you know, how that story ended. Um, and, um, but I also believe, you know, like these media brands, I think, you know, you give it a go, but not all of them are meant to last forever. And that there's sort of a natural life cycle of some, of some, of some brands that some titles will come and go and they are just reflections of an era. And that was one of them. So let's digress for a minute. You just set us down a, a different path. I think it's worth going down. And before you said something, Janice, about, you know, for those of you that remember Timec. Huh, yes. So we've all seen technology dramatically disrupt our industry. It's what's led to your current enterprise, the Ankler. Yes. Some genres of the media have navigated better than others, right? Audio, we talked a little bit about podcasts, which is part of the Ankler repertoire, yep. if you will. That audio has been reinvented in many ways and is now a hot medium again. Yep. The outdoor industry via digital outdoor has been reinvented and is now a hot industry again. Newspapers, some have moved successfully from an advertising model to a subscription model, some earlier to the game, some later, but there's some hope there. Uh, right. 
the magazine industry has arguably had the toughest time. Yes. What are your thoughts on that? And were there mistakes that were made as digital was first rising in prominence that in retrospect, if you were Nero and this is Rome and you could rule differently, or was it, as you just suggested a moment ago, not everything is meant to last forever and was the decline of the magazine industry as an industry an inevitability? So, okay. I'll answer that in a few parts. So, um, an all excellent question. So I would say um, the first thing is anyone who ever worked at one of the big legacy publishers, like let's say Hearst, Condé Nast, Time Inc., there was this tortured phase where there would be an online team. And the and I mean, I think some of this is still going on today, an, an online team and then the print team. And the print team was the A team and the online team was the B team. And they were really meant to service the A team. And this belief that you're just putting stories that were carefully, preciously curated uh, for print, that this the B team is there to put them online. Um, and and then, uh, you know, I think you, you there were certain sort of disastrous experiments, like at Time Inc., they did something called Pathfinder, which where they felt like this was going to be the portal for Time Inc. publications to be found online. Um, and so I think that, um, and I think that one of the things, so I think that was a big mistake to not put priority towards um, towards digital first, which is a cliche now, uh, and kind of putting those people in a, in a second position. Um, but I think there was also this misguided belief as the internet began to take off um, that, God, I sound very old, but that um, that these brands meant more to the consumer than they actually did. And I think that um, the brands, like uh, the internet has been for better or worse an incredibly democratizing place that people discover content that suits them uh, and they don't really necessarily, um, they're, I think anyone who has run one of these places knows no one's entering through the homepage. Uh, and so it democratizes and flattens information so that the best stuff rises to the top. And so I think that people, um, and I think a lot of it has been said about this with Time Inc. I'll just keep going back to that example. This institutional arrogance where the company believed that their brands meant more than they did to the public. And therefore, um, well, we this is not the way we, you know, insert name. This is not the way we do this. Um, and that there was something kind of almost um, uh, cheapening the brand to, to pursue a digital audience. Um, and so I think there was that, I think that, while they were resting on their laurels, thinking their brands, and and these are great brands, but that they meant more to the younger audience than they did, that it allowed a lot of other stuff to come up and grab their audience's interest. Um, and then I think for magazines in particular, I think we've seen a lot written about this and spoken about in the last five years, or you know, really even last two years, that publishing, magazine publishing really is... It's an it's, it was an enterprise built on aspiration, but really aspiration for a specific group of people, and that has and that kind of messaging is in some ways fallen out of style. It was it was really meant like magazine publishing was built for I would say a white middle class um, who aspired. I remember someone once said about Vanity Fair like it's meant it, you know it's read by the. Uh, it's read by the best waiters in Cleveland that that like it's people everyone wanting to aspire 
up to something, whatever that up, and I'm putting that in quotation marks meant. And um, and I think that that view, um, I think we've seen it sort of collapse in the in certainly in the last you know two years since George Floyd, but definitely you know in the last decade, you've seen this erosion of this this kind of. Um, prepackaged version of what you should wear, what you should look like, um, who should be photographed, what you know, who represents what America is, and magazines were in many ways the last bastion of of that kind of um, that kind of you know, and I'm putting in quotation marks, aspirational view of America. And I thought, I think in that way, it fell out of step with the times. Um, and I think I, I don't know if you've ever tried to give a print magazine to a younger person and by younger, I mean, like even under 40. I mean, it's just like like it's just they refuse to even look at it or take it or open it. It just doesn't feel relevant. Um, and so I think that a lot of publications are sort of these wonderful, like some of them will just be artifacts that represented a certain era. Um, but I, when you look at magazine publishing, it was also, you know, it, a lot of brands were advertising. They were engineered to create advertising. So you wanted, you wanted to get luxury advertising that wanted to be in a certain environment. Um, and that created, I mean, it became this cycle where you are really, in some ways, like serving the advertiser more than the audience. Um, and um, and when you combine that with believing that your brand might have more resonance than it actually does, it, it creates a situation where we're in now. I think it's a really fascinating area. And, you know, these are some great companies that are just completely gone now. And I guess that's true in so many other you know, genres of business. I mean, look at, you know, the big, my office is right near Madison Square Garden and Macy's is hanging on, you know, yeah. by, by their fingernails. Uh, but look at all the other retailers around this area, you know, the going way back, you know, to names like Gimbal's and others that have been gone for quite some time now. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess it's certainly not unique, but I find that really interesting because there were so many talented icons. And then another one, Bonnie Fuller, who brought you to, us weekly, but yep. um, seems like that industry navigated more poorly than everybody else. And maybe it's, it's a, num a number of the things that you just cited. Yeah. I mean, so let's see. So uh, Bonnie had um, brought me over to be her executive editor at Us Weekly. And, and I really, like in hindsight, um, really I'm amazed at the gamble Jan Wenner took, be, uh, the owner of Us Weekly and Rolling Stone and, you know, famous, um, sure. famous, famous uh, publisher. And um, and he um, I mean, he was hemorrhaging money on this risk of trying to create a new weekly publication. And at the time, you could have a weekly publication on the newsstand and make a ton of money if you hit it right. And if you hit it wrong, you lose a ton of money. Um, and so he was trying to get into the sweet spot of hitting it right. And so he brings on Bonnie, who uh, was very well known at the time for being able to increase newsstand sales. She had done it, I think, at Glamour and uh, she'd done it in Canada. Uh, and I, she, I feel like she had a oh, Cosmo obviously. Um, and, um, and so he brought her over to us weekly. She hired me as her executive editor and, um, I'm probably like that at, at the time that sort of quintessential executive editor, like 
really good at keeping the trains running and like edit, like top editing and managing hurt feelings on the staff and um, hiring and all those things. And, um, and so Bonnie starts to have some success, but she and Jan don't get along. <laughs> and, um, and the magazine was still, there was this, there was this break even point where you had to sell, which seems impossible at this point, you had to sell 550 copies a week on the newsstand and you would, then, then, then Jan would start to make money, and the publication was not reaching it exactly. Um, and Jan watches the numbers like a hawk. I mean, he, like on Monday mornings, the numbers would roll in from Walmart and Target, and um, you would have to get called down to his office and talk about what happened and why, and and account for it and, you know, all sorts of things that were uncomfortable. And I think he and Bonnie got into, definitely got into some, you know, uh, probably some tussles around that. Um, and, um, uh, but, you know, Bonnie also had a lot of opportunity in front of her and she took one of those other opportunities. And then, you know, unknown me, I think I was 32 years old, got called to come do it. Got, got the call from Jan to take it over. So let's talk a little bit more about Jan because he's such yeah. a seminal, interesting figure. And I wouldn't say one of the names that's lost in history, but underappreciated. Yeah, I think so. And I know his son, Gus, who's doing a good job now on the digital side, working sure. for Jay and that group. Um, but talk a little bit about Jan, I guess, semi-memorialized yeah. in Cameron Crowe's great film. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I just I just showed our one of our kids, Jerry Maguire, the other day, and I forgot Jan was in there um, playing the head of the sports agency where Jerry Maguire works. Um, so, you know, I think like, like, again, this is like, I don't mean for this whole podcast to be a nostalgic podcast, but, you know, in, in that, in that era of like the early 2000s, like Jan was written about all the time for better or worse. And um, the New York Post, we all know Keith Kelly and the New York Post would just, I mean, they covered him like, I mean, like he was, you know, the Paris Hilton of publishing and it would, and there was this infamous thing he would do, the clean desk memo, where Jan, Jan was a total neat freak. And so what, periodically this memo on paper would go out to everyone saying desk inspection is coming on, you know, whatever day. And like, then there would be like a dumpster that would be rolled down the hall and everyone would have to like scramble and throw all their stuff into the desk and um, into the dumpster. And so every, it was like this famous thing. And also I think the word that was always used to describe Jan was mercurial. Um, which I think was sometimes used as a euphemism, <laughs> but because he, he was, he like, there were a lot of like, it's so funny to this day, you can, when you meet people in publishing, I would say 80% of them once worked for Jan. I never ceases to amaze me. Everyone worked for Jan. So I really liked Jan for starters. Like I, I think like, you know, when, especially when I think about it now in hindsight, um, in the sort of present day conversation, like I'm this literal nobody female Asian American editor. And like, he thought I was the one and I, you know, I had never done anything super impressive. You know, I was just a, like a really good, like senior top editor. Um, and so he gave it to me and I, you know, and I will be forever grateful to him for that. Like it really set me on this path and he, um, 
so he and I mean, it was very, it was really funny. It is some of the most memorable times of my life. To, I, so I would work there with Jan and he had a number two named Kent Brownridge, who I'm sure some of your audience knows. And he was sort of Jan's like henchman. And, um, and they, and what I liked about it. So I think, okay. So Jan was, I think his reputation is as a meddler and maybe he did that a lot in Rolling Stone. He did not do that really on Us Weekly. He, um, cause I think he was like, I'm not, the average reader for Us Weekly was me. It was me at the time, 32 year old, female, urban, high, you know, thanks to Jan, high household income. And so, um, and so he would at some point realize like, I am not the audience for this. And so I will let them do what they do unless they screw it up. And um, so I, I thought he was always incredibly supportive. Um, I would go into these weekly meetings with him. He has this gorgeous wood paneled office on Sixth Avenue and, you know, photos of him with Bono and Mick Jagger and Bruce Springsteen's guitar in there. And, you know, I'm making some of this up. I, some of it was things like that. And um so yeah, we had a really good run and, you know, there were times when things weren't selling well and then we would have a bad run, but I never, I always felt like, I always felt very supported by him. And, you know, when we, uh, when we, so I, I like, I, there was this really poignant meeting we had when at the end of it, when I was, um, I didn't renew my contract with him. I just felt like it was time to move on. It was right after it was, I think I, I think I left him in 2009. So right after the markets crashed, I was just so burnt out. And like, he had tears in his eyes and I sort of had this like moment in his office where I'm like, oh my God, like this was a great thing for both of us. And not a lot of people get to leave their jobs like that. Fantastic story. And you uh, had tremendous success Business-wise, I think you grew it from somewhere around 800,000 to right around 2 million. Yeah, it was crazy. Like the, um, I mean, it was really lightning in a bottle. And um, and so one of the things that I brought to that job was this. So remember where I had worked, I'd worked at People, I had worked at InStyle. And both of those were obviously celebrity publications. People, I was never going to be a reader of. I was too young. It was too, like at the time, like funny for me to say now, it was too momsy, too middle America. And um, and there was this whole thing, I'll never forget that Carol Wallace, the editor at the time would say, you know, we're not here to break news. We are here to satisfy curiosity for people once they've heard about something out in the world. And, um, and you know, when you can't, you can imagine how that would fly today. Um, and so it was meant for, you know, a woman in her forties with kids and living you know, in the, you know, quote unquote, middle America. Um, and, uh, and so then um, in style was, it was it sees this whole celebrity culture uh, attaching what they, people are wearing to celebrities and um, putting celebrities on the cover in a way, I mean, this is so common now, but in a way that made like Condé Nast change, how they, who were they were putting on covers going from models to celebrities. Anyway, so I, I had this whole thing, you know, basically schooled in that. And then it just felt to me at Us Weekly that the conversation around celebrity had changed among young people. And you could say this was, you know, all a precursor to social media, but that the relationship was different. There was this advent of reality TV that everybody wanted to have this intimacy or felt that they had a relationship with celebrity that they had not had previously. And that might include, you know, go calling people by their first names. You know, Jessica Simpson was Jessica and Nick Lachey was 
as Nick and and this kind of way that um you know Bonnie had made a, had had created the whole just celebrities just like us uh conceit that became a big hit in in us weekly and um but that was kind of the whole theme of 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 it all that like somehow you could see this in reality television somehow somehow the line between you and being famous was razor thin and it felt like very accessible. I mean, of course, fast forwarding, we now, everyone does this on YouTube and Snapchat and TikTok, but back then it felt pretty like revolutionary, like a wide open space. So Jan's instinct that you were the right person for the job proves right. You have great business success. You also are as much as anyone responsible for helping to shape the whole business of the business of celebrity culture and fascination with celebrities. And your influence to this day, Janice, is enormous. Look at what's become, and you tipped it, talking about TikTok and Snap and some of the other social platforms. Do you marvel at where we are now with celebrity culture, or was it an inevitability fueled by the immediacy of technology and that everything is an instant alert in your phone buzzing or ringing or whatever it does? Um, Okay, I would say yes to all of that. I think um, it was interesting because I I, I wrote about this, you know, before I did the Ankler, uh, during the pandemic, I was a contributing editor at Time and I wrote a piece for Time about um, what what that was all about, that whole celebrity culture craze. And um, and I wrote about how it became this era of complete distraction, that it was this pivot. If you, if you recall, and maybe some of us don't recall because we were too busy caring about Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez's first engagement. Um, but that uh that it was a it was a pretty nationally it was a really tough time. We had had 9-11 and I talked about, so remember I joined, I become the editor-in-chief of Us Weekly, I think in 2002 or two, or maybe just the start of, or 2003. God, I can't remember, but 9-11 had happened and there was this whole notion of like, oh my God, America will never be the same. We're going to be so serious and the death of fun. And, um, and instead we became just like, more, we became consumed with the banal and we became consumed with the inane. And it was this incredible distraction. So 9-11 happens and within months, The Bachelor is launching on ABC and Joe Millionaire and um, Survivor is taking off and American Idol. And we did the exact opposite of what we thought would happen. We became obsessed with these narratives and I I call them like narratives of no consequence. Like it just became entertainment. And, um, and that, and then, so then we end up in a, you know, in two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and a highly unpopular president at the time, George W. Bush, and everyone is sort of talking about this other stuff and not just like, and not just people. And this was one of the distinguishing factors of Us Weekly. It wasn't just people. I think there had been this very down market sense of what celebrity publications were. You were like, either like, you know, you know, mom from, you know, a mom who was reading People magazine, um, who loved Lonnie Anderson and Burt Reynolds or, or whoever, and um, or you were sort of this tawdry, down and dirty um, star, globe, National Enquirer reader. And I think where Us Weekly slid in was just to recognize that, oh my God, there is this incredible um, 
space of um, young, affluent, highly educated people who are also talking about this stuff. And so it became this thing where you could go to dinner parties, I'm sure you did, in Manhattan and um, or Los Angeles, and people would talk about you'd go there and people would legitimately talk about, you know, JLo's engagement ring or, um, you know, Lindsay Lohan or Nick and Jessica, are they breaking up? And it, that became the dominant, that that became like a very dominant part of the conversation in a way that that went away. It doesn't happen today. Um, uh, I think we, I think we reverted to what was once before and some of it is the oversaturation of it. But um, yeah, I felt like it was just a, a real distraction from sort of a harsher reality of what was happening. And what's your take on the rise of influencer culture? God, I you mean- have this, a unique perspective there. Yeah, I mean, this was like, this is just the manifestation of what, I mean, if, I feel like the aughts were just a warm up to all of this, right? Like showing, I mean, I think The Bachelor is the best example of, of that. Like. What is that show? It's it's absurd, right? I mean, and and it's just took it's just a massive, massive hit. And um, I don't give Jan his credit on this one. I think you know. I think my maybe in the first six months I worked there, our best selling cover was about The Bachelor. It was the first time anyone from The Bachelor had ever had a cover, and it was Jan's idea to do it. For some reason, he was into The Bachelor, <laughs> and um, uh, and. Um, and so that, I mean, those were people literally like, you know, quote unquote, average people who became, who were suddenly on magazine covers. And, um, and I think that you could see this extension of the conversation where you're like, oh my God, if I just put myself a little bit more out there and say something outrageous and look kind of hot, like there's an audience there and that will mean something to me. It might mean like, you know, a narcissistic fulfillment, but it also might mean money. It also might mean brands want to be attached. And, um, and like, I could make a real business out of just putting myself out there. And I mean, obviously Kim Kardashian, um, you know, it, during my time at Us Weekly was beginning her ascent from the sex tape. And, um, and I remember in my going away video that the staff put together, Kim Kardashian was in it. And she said something at the end, like, I mean, it was just like, thanks for making me and my butt famous or something like that. It was funny. She was in on the joke, but she wasn't wrong. I mean, that it just, you know, just through, just through, you know, what, whatever, it wasn't because you got a PhD. It wasn't because you, you know, cured cancer, but just through some certain like levers, you could pull some and become famous. Not everyone, but now you have this, these generations of people who are attempting to do the same. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. Years ago, we had Chris Jenner spoke at Advertising Week. Yep, and she was wonderful and yes. told the story of how she built the Kardashian brand, yes. and it was a great, you know, business story. Yeah, uh, and she was also really thoughtful and kind. I let my daughter take the day off from school and uh -huh. in the green room, and it was time for Chris to go on stage. And she had ducked uh, into uh, makeup for just some last minute, you know, before she was going on. And she ducked back out and said, I forgot to say goodbye to your daughter. Oh. I thought that's, I was such, I remember that. It must've been 10 years ago, but it meant she thought about it. And I thought it was very human and I was very impressed with her. Uh, you know, I, I know she gets her knocks and momager and will do anything, but she, she is 
I have met her in person also and spent time with her. She's pretty awesome. And, um, and I think one of the things, and I, I don't mean to dwell on the Kardashians on this podcast, but like, you know, they, they definitely like, when you think about, okay, there's certain things people are going to say they don't like that they did, right. That they put this emphasis on appearance and became famous for nothing and whatever, whatever. But they also, I think, created this really important conversation about, um, you know, mental health and speaking about things openly and freely and um, like kind of unbridled female ambition, which is typically been frowned upon. Um, but that whole, I mean, you could argue that they opened up the door to this sort of therapeutic culture we talk about now where that way everyone is sort of much more open about their emotional issues, their anxiety. And I feel like they they probably were a big part of that. And also, uh, you know, a big part of sort of demonstrating. Um, and I think both in reality and in, and on screen, like this, this idea of you put your family first. Um, and, uh, it's just, it's incredible to me, this, um, the, the number of sort of popular culture or, um, you know, culture driving themes and stories that every member of that family is part of. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty wild, but she is, you know, she is, uh, she is a force who is, I mean, minted how many billionaires out of her families? It's yeah. it's, family. it's impressive. It's an impressive business story. Forget about everything else, just from a pure business perspective. Okay, mm -hmm. let's get back to you. So okay. you leave Us Weekly and Jan, yeah. and you then begin a tenure with what started as Prometheus, Guggenheim, one of the more interesting figures in our industry, uh, who uh, we both know well, Richard Beckman. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, we'll use the word interesting. And uh, I'd love to talk about what you did with The Hollywood Reporter in particular, because you took it from a moment when it was sort of at the bottom of the mountain and took it back to the top of the mountain. Yeah, it was like, I feel so lucky I've had these two, and I hope a third, like really kind of defining career moments. And one of them was, um, so my husband and I, you know, left, left us weekly. Like I'm, you know, we're trying, we want to move to California no matter what, because we've decided we have two little kids at the time. We now, then we ended up having a third in California, but we're like, okay, we're done with this. Like the garbage bags piled on the, on the street. Like I can't push a stroller in the snow. I mean, I, every cliche of living in New York and its hardships we were experiencing. Um, and so, um, and so then page six, everything comes back to page six, page six ran an item. We, uh, that we were, we had, we were selling our apartment in New York and moving to Los Angeles. So only half of that was true. We were, we were selling our apartment, but we were moving to, um, San Francisco. That's where we decided we were going to go. And we had actually had a bid on a house. Um, and so then I get these like voicemails from Richard Beckman and, you know, I think your readers, for those of you who have met him or your, your audience, those of you who have met him, it's like, Janice, Janice, it's Richard Beckman. We must meet like right away. And, and um, so we ended up having breakfast um, at the Bowery Hotel. He had this crazy idea of what he wanted. And you can't, you kind of can't tell if you're just getting sold or, you know, or not, if he's just trying to pitch you. And we ended up talking for over a period of several months. My husband had this very bad impression of Los Angeles, um, probably because I had worked at Us Weekly and he, it, he equated it with that world of, you know, um, nightclubs and, you know, silliness. Um, 
And, um, and then over the, over the course of time, I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. If nothing else, it gets me out to Los Angeles. It gets me out to California. And, um, and it just ended up becoming this like monster success, like one of those great career risks that paid off. And, um, so you, you were right when you said like, it was, it was dead. It was, I mean, it was written about worse, you know, akin nothing could have been worse than how us weekly was written about when it was when everyone thought yawn was going to fail and i you might recall they used to call it yawns vietnam like you could never win and um the hollywood reporter was the los angeles trade version of that where there were these new digital entrants and people thought that that meant that the hollywood reporter was going to die it was owned by nielsen at the time before it was taken over by private money from guggenheim partners jimmy finkelstein richard beckman and um Todd Bowley, who's in, in the news a lot these days. Um, and so um, so I think the thing that kind of clinched me about wanting to do it was that they, I had this lunch. God, I'm going to space out on the name of the restaurant. What's the Italian restaurant on 6th Avenue downtown that everyone- uh, Da Silvano? Da Silvano, yes. I, I think we were at Da Silvano. And so um, and so uh, they, they, I had was with Todd Bowley, Jimmy Finkelstein, and Richard Beckman, which sounds like I'm about to tell a joke. That's, but quite, that's quite a quartet. It is quite the quartet, and me, yeah. and um, and so we, um, so we had a conversation about what I would do with it if I did it, and that was it. Then they were just like, okay, like, like you know, and to their credit. I had so much freedom. I had so much free reign. No one was telling me what to do. It was like a journalist dream come true. So one of the things was that, like, I was like 2010 and I thought the media economy was bad. And I felt like, oh my God, like no one, this is, a, I have to seize this opportunity. No one's going to give me free reign to do a publication like this again. And this is going to be fantastic. Um, and so I took it. So um, anyway, it was go. It was dying. It was you know life support. And then um, I came, met with the staff. I thought I would have to turn them all over, but there were so many diamonds. There were so many gems there. Diamonds in the rough. High brick brought on some other people. Everyone was like for months before it launched. People were like, "It's going to be bad." You know, she's going to turn into Us Weekly. She doesn't know what she's doing. I mean, I think you know. I think part of growing up in publishing was just sort of learning to have a very tough, a very thick skin about all of that and just put your head down and do the work. And then it launched, it was a huge hit. People loved it and it like took off. And so it was, um, it had gone from, let's see, when I got there, I think 600,000 unique visitors on Comscore every month as um, so small, it wasn't measured by Comscore. And I think, uh, you know, in my last year there, we hit 22 or 23 million unique visitors a month on Comscore. So it would, it just became a monster. Unbelievable. What a, what a success story and a lengthy tenure. They're what, four, five, six years? Longer. God, I can. So I <laughs> apparently I can only stay at a job seven years. Um, so I was there. Um, I was there seven years. I had an equity. I was an owner of The Hollywood Reporter. That was one of my deals with uh, with Todd and Jimmy. Um, and so I had a pretty decent ownership stake in it. And um, at the seven years, my equity was mature. I could exercise it. And, um, Todd asked me to stay one more year, um, with the company before he would give me all of it. <laughs> so I, I, I stayed one more year to do it. And, um, and, um, but I'd like, that was like just such a fantastic run for me and the team. Like it was really fun. And I think like 
one of the things a team, like some of those people are some of my best friends uh, for life. And um, that you just like, it's so magical when you work someplace and it's just like firing and people are having so much fun and killing themselves, but loving every minute of it. And that was sort of what the Hollywood Reporter was. Fantastic. And what's your take on what Jay has put together with the Hollywood Reporter and Variety, both under the same family? I, I, I love Jay and I love what he's trying to do. I don't love when things like that happen. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why the anchor so appealing to for, was so appealing for me to do is that I think, you know, joint like putting similar things together doesn't make them stand out. It makes them more similar, right? And um, and I think that um, it just seems like, you know, media is better and healthier. And I'll you know I'll say this with my Columbia Journalism board hat on. Like I think media is healthier and better when there's competition and when there's more choice in the marketplace. And I think both for sponsors and for the audience. And um, I mean. When I was at Us Weekly, like, you know, we wanted to kill People Magazine every single week, right? And like that gives you some drive and it gives the audience something to like, they know that their place is like duking it out and trying to do the best work for them. And um, when I was at The Hollywood Reporter, I think we, I mean, we were, we had become definitely like the top, the dominant player in the entertainment space, but you still like, you know, like Variety started to, they did this. They did this um, knockoff of the Hollywood Reporter when they relaunched, um, and you know, like, like it's and you, we, we would always be very sort of dismissive of it, like, oh, can you believe that? And like, you know, a bit, like that sense of competition is really good for a team and good for an organization. Just it helps you define your own place in the market as well. Um, so uh, I, I, I don't really know. I think that that. I think that probably I would just say this, you know, no one's asking my opinion, but I think you probably have to find some bigger points of differentiation between the two brands to pay that off. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that spirit of competition and the substance of competition really drives success. Mm -hmm. And when you take that away, you've taken, you know, sort of the fire starter and the kerosene away with it. So yes. Let's let's talk about the ankle now because it's such a, a fascinating thing you're doing. I'd love to hear the ankle origin story because I yeah don't know yeah. Um, well, um, let's see. So um, you're very kind to not mention that I worked at Quibi for 11 months. I think you're. I I was <laughs> skipping over that completely, uh, uh, and some of your other consultancies. But I I did skip Quibi, and well, so I, so did apparently skip it. We could talk about no, it. no. I mean, so apparently, it. lots of consumers, millions and millions of consumers, also skipped it. Um, so I, I um, but I think that like I'll just say about like that experience was it made me feel like I would really like to be an editor again like I like I would I missed being a journalist I really wanted to do that again and so I think that then going back to the Hollywood Reporter experience like I also felt like I would like to you know have some ownership stake some skin in the game if I do something again I don't want to be like just an employee again um in my life and um so I my um it's someone very senior in the entertainment industry had sent, had emailed me and said like, oh my God, have you seen this newsletter called The Ankler? Like, it is like so good. This is, must be the smartest person like 
this is the smartest person writing about Hollywood. And so it's by Richard Rushfield, who I know. And like this person in the entertainment industry was like, do you think you can get me a meeting with Richard? I'm like, yeah, I can get you a meeting with Richard. I mean, like, you know, we're just journalists. And um, so we had, we, you know, I, I, I kind of reunited with Richard who I hadn't seen in a while. And I knew him, I'd met him, um, you know, over the course of being at the Hollywood Reporter. And then I really start. I start. I subscribed to the Ankler. I started to read it. I was blown away. He was so good and funny and smart and all the, and had this voice that was missing, particularly as the Penske consolidation was happening. And um, so there were a couple forces. One was this consolidation that was happening where I felt like there was room for a new voice um, and potentially in the sponsorship advertising universe as well to come in and, um, and take hold. He had an, he had a, an audience that was subscribing that like was off the chain, just like you, like you would, if you had to sat down and wrote down all the names of people you wish subscribed to your to your influential newsletter, it would be those names. And um, and then it just seemed like you could do something with this to make it into a proper business. So Richard agreed to it, which was nice. You know, Richard's kind of um, cantankerous and like sort of a bit of a lone wolf, but he agreed to do this. We put together a business plan. Um, Richard was publishing on Substack. The founder of Substack, one of the founders, Hamish McKenzie, reached out to Y Combinator, unbeknownst to us. Y Combinator reached out to us to apply. We applied and that was it. That's how we got the business off the ground. And doing this thing that like, God, you know, I like people who've been in publishing a long time aren't used to like doing it really on a shoestring, like and um, and uh, and trying to grow it as fast as you can. And um, so White Combinator, which is the this this um, the considered, I guess, the premier seed accelerator out of Silicon Valley, like they um, really helped us. And probably your audience who's from advertising and marketing will appreciate this. They helped strip our whole messaging down for our fundraise. I mean, it just is mind blowing. It was like one slide, four bullet points, a 60 second video. That is it. That's how you raise money. And no, like, you know, not all the jazz hands and fancy fonts and like, you know, the glory of it all. And it, one of one of the things that like was so counterintuitive to me, having worked with marketing departments that just labor over things forever, was that um, they said repeatedly, don't spend too much time on the deck because if you do, people will think you're wasting your time, that you're not building the business, you're just wasting your time. Um, so yeah, so we, we um, joined Rich, I joined Richard, I raised the subscription price um, and this is such a good week for us to talk because as of this week, we have um, uh, officially tripled our subscription revenue and, um, and uh, let's see, um, doubled our entire subscription base. So it's it's grown really nicely. And we're on track for um, uh, low seven figures in sponsorship revenue for the year. Great, fantastic. And give us a, a look into the Janisman crystal ball. We're doing this again a year from now. Where, where can we look for the anchor to be in the world? Um, let's see. I, I would like for it to be, uh, just on the, on the lips of more people. I, I would like for it to be something people talk about. No. And it's, um, I, one of the things that doing a subscription product makes a little bit harder is, um, you know, there's a paywall and you have to be pretty 
ruthless about the paywall or it doesn't work. And so um, it's much harder to get stories to go social, you know, to, to take off, to go viral on social. It's much harder um, for them to catch on um, in that sense, in the traditional sense of making stories take off. Um, but I would like, I would like people to, I would like the angler to uh, be much more expansive in what it covers in the world of entertainment. And I don't mean like, you know, in the traditional sense of just trying to reach audience scale. Um, so it, I, I mean, in terms of trying to go deep into the pockets of the industry where our information about business can give them huge value. Um, and for example, we launched something last week called The Optionist as a paid subscription product. And that one is about... Um, intellectual property, available intellectual property, which sounds really boring if you don't work in Hollywood in development. And uh, and that has a very high subscription price, but we believe it's a value. Um, it's $2,500 a year for that to get access to that list and that material. Um, and we have people who have signed up and are it's doing quite well. So we're very happy with that. Um, but I think that as we think about entertainment and we've got gone through a hundred years of thinking that entertainment is film and television out of Hollywood, but the definition of entertainment has broadened enormously. It's social media, it's games, um, it's sports media. It's a lot of different pockets where we would like to be. It's NFTs. Um, you know, if, if we believe that this is all going to keep going, it's the metaverse. If we believe this is going to really happen. Um, and so we would like to be covering those pockets of of entertainment as it is presently defined. Um, and I think that we would like to be using the subscription model to roll out very targeted, um, very targeted uh, newsletters, products, podcasts to serve that audience. Absolutely fantastic. It's a great story, uh, Janice. And I can't thank you enough for doing this. You know, I'm not much of a gambler. But if I was going to Caesar's Palace tomorrow and I had to make a bet, I would put all my chips on you. Oh, my God. The future success of the Ankler, because uh, I believe in track records and I believe in people. And you're, uh, you've had success everywhere you've been. You've got that Midas touch. And you, oh do, my God. And you do it with humanity. Thank uh, you. And, uh, and you're also a fierce advocate for the AAPI population. Uh, which has had a tough time the last yes. years. Our former president really did some job demonizing. Yeah, uh, thank you very much. Asian yeah. Americans, and I love what you're doing with Jeremy Lin and so much other stuff. And uh, we'll be doing a big, big thing uh, with our friend Bing Chen and Goldhouse. Oh, yeah. I love who doesn't. Everyone knows Bing, by the way. It's the weird, like, He's known by every human in the world, but it is uh, fantastic. And uh, we're doing something on a par with what we did last year at Advertising Week for the Black community up at the Apollo Theater with Mary J. Blige, which we did with our friends at YouTube. And it was a benefit for the Mandela Foundation. And we're committed here to using the Advertising Week platform to shine a light on all of us, including the AAPI demo, the Hispanic demo, the LGBTQ community and making sure that our industry uh, talks to everyone because why wouldn't you want to talk to all your customers? Exactly. Everyone's dollar is the same in the end, right? So that's the way I always view it. Uh, and I, I, I'm glad to hear you do and that 
I think everyone should think of every dollar having equal value. <laughs> um, well, Matt, thank you for saying those kind words about, um, I, I, you really did gamble on me. If you really did put down money, I would never leave you shoeless uh, walking down the street. So um, I appreciate those kind words. You got it. A pleasure, Janice. Chaptering and other structural elements for this podcast are powered by Snackable AI. With the ability to unify all content in one place, have AI distill the best insights instantaneously, and share them seamlessly, businesses on Snackable create more relevant value for their audiences faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.